0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Tonight and tomorrow, round two of the Democratic debates. Colorado's presidential candidates once again go in as underdogs. We review their latest strategies. Then, most people want to die suddenly rather than languish. But many of us will get the news we have a terminal condition weeks, months, maybe years beforehand. So how do you cope with that span of time? A Durango writer and hospice volunteer tries to find the answers in her new book, What Does It Feel Like to Die? Later, millions of dogs in the U.S. develop cancer every year. Colorado researchers hope asking owners a lot of questions about their pets will shed light on why.
1: We ask about any human food they get. Do you feed your dog peppers?
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tonight begins round two of the Democratic presidential debates. John Hickenlooper says he first tried to establish the basics. And in tonight's sequel from Detroit, he wants to convince the American people why he should be the nominee. Meanwhile, amid a flurry of positive press, Colorado's other candidate, Senator Michael Bennett, is preparing for his appearance on night two we're going to frame the issues and the stakes with Stephen Gruber Miller. He covers politics for the Des Moines Register in Iowa, a state crucial to Hickenlooper's hopes. And Stephen, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. And Seth Mascott directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver and has written about the presidential campaign for the website 538. And Seth, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. Stephen, since the first debate, we've seen former Governor Hickenlooper pedal across Iowa, write editorials for newspapers there. He told us that he and his reshuffled campaign staff are really rededicating themselves to Iowa. Any tangible results that you can see? Well,
2: like you said, he's put in a lot of face time, time on the ground here in Iowa. Uh, He is certainly uh, trying to meet with Iowans one-on-one, which is what he's told us that he prefers to do. He said... You know, he, he he has acknowledged that he's not maybe the sharpest debater in the field, but he feels like if he can tell his story one-on-one to people, that's how he can connect. And so that's what he's been doing. Like you said, he pedaled across part of Iowa, riding about 12 miles of rag rye, an annual bike ride across the state. He poured beer for people along the ride. He's written editorials. He's done all these things. You know, he believes that that's going to make a difference for him, I think, It's too early to say whether that has uh, unfolded or not.
0: I'll say that friends of mine who've also done RAGBRAI laughed at the idea that he had just done about 12 miles of a race that I think, yes, is is normally much longer.
2: Crosses Uh, the entire state. Exactly.
0: (laughs) In our last interview with Hickenlooper, he acknowledged that if he doesn't get a top three finish in the Iowa caucuses next February, his campaign will likely be over. Is there a path at this point where that happens for him, a top three finish there?
2: I really don't want to say to rule anything out. You know, the field is obviously uh, pretty wide open, right? And a lot of candidates believe they're going to have their shot here. But it'll be tough. Uh, he's polling uh, near the bottom of the pack in Iowa in our Des Moines Register poll. and And he really will need, I think, a moment in this debate to kind of show that he's unique and can stand out in some way and he's in the game.
0: Seth Maskett, as of now, it appears that neither Senator Bennett nor Governor Hickenlooper would qualify for the third set of debates, uh, which are scheduled for September. Hickenlooper says he's committed to stay in the race, at least through Iowa. But I'm wondering, how can any candidate stay viable if he or she doesn't get the chance to reach a national audience in the subsequent debates?
3: I mean, you know, the simple answer that is it's just really hard to remain viable in that kind of a situation. It would be one thing if there were only one or two other candidates he's running against, but you know there's still a field of 20 odd people out there. And for him to actually get through and actually start rising in the polls at a time when he's not being invited to uh, subsequent debates, it's, it's just it simply makes the job harder um, and it's already a very challenging one for him.
0: I alluded to changes in the Hickenlooper camp, staffing and direction. Uh, On social media lately, he's sort of gently going after other candidates, almost chiding them conversationally about their policies. Uh, For example, on Monday, he tweeted that Elizabeth Warren has some big ideas that have an even bigger cost going on. We proved in Colorado that you don't need big, expensive government programs to achieve progressive goals. Let's talk about it tomorrow night. That's as opposed to the more aggressive tact that candidates have taken. I mean, I think of Kamala Harris going after Joe Biden in the first debate. Hickenlooper says he's just not going to do something like that on the televised stage. Uh, How feasible is it to have his cake and eat it, too?
3: Well, if there is a path for Hickenlooper, it's to be seen as one of the more moderate candidates in the field. Uh, the, the more progressive end of the spectrum is already pretty well filled out, but he is trying to be seen as uh, more moderate, more pragmatic. Um, he hasn't really uh, very aggressively gone after uh, the more progressive candidates on this, um, except to sort of uh, decry socialism. I think that, hard, that job gets a little harder for him in the debate field Tonight, given that he's up against Steve Bullock, who has also sort of defined himself as as being from the more more moderate wing of the party, plus Joe Biden has, uh, you know, it, it is kind of eating up a lot of space in there as well. So it's it's not easy, but you know, it it, it is a difficult needle for him to
0: thread. You mentioned Steve Bullock, governor of Montana. Uh, in keeping with the changes, the campaign seems to be embracing the idea of letting Hickenlooper be the quirky guy that repeatedly won over Colorado voters. Uh, One example, this recent commercial that harkens back to his days as the owner of a brew pub in uh, Denver's lower downtown. As a successful governor, mayor, and craft brewer, I understand America's
1: crisis of division. But we can't let hazy IPAs and pastry stouts divide our nation any longer.
3: We need a president who has created balanced budgets and balanced beers.
0: We need a president to tackle climate change and a contemporary Belgian-style Goose Lambic. Okay. <laughs> a reference to Lambic in a presidential ad. Uh, Stephen, I'm, I'm eager to hear your reaction to that ad.
2: Sure. I think that's kind of one of the unique aspects of his background that he can really lean into in the hopes of standing out in this really crowded field, obviously. You know, it's the kind of ad that I think... He's hoping we'll get people to kind of perk up and, and pay attention, uh, even if they haven't heard much about him before. And I think it's a pretty funny ad, honestly.
3: It's appealing, honestly. It's—I'm uh, not saying this is going to, you know, make his campaign happen, but that is his his brand. This is his product. This is what makes him sort of stand out in the field. And it, there's nothing wrong with kind of, uh, you know, leaning into that identity.
0: And a friend of mine who runs a brewery in West Des Moines will tell you that. Uh... The beer scene is expanding in Iowa. I think this maybe the way to people's votes is through their stomachs. Stephen, <laughs>
2: <laughs> there is certainly, uh, yeah, there certainly is an expanding craft beer scene in in Iowa that he has taken advantage of in his campaign uh, stops in the, for the locations, and I think that's always. I mean, he seems to be enjoying it for sure.
0: Okay, I mentioned Kamala Harris, U.S. Senator from California. She plans to visit Colorado Friday. And included on her itinerary is a trip to Manual High School. That's a Northeast Denver school that had closed in 2006 while Michael Bennett was superintendent of Denver Public Schools. Bennett received a great deal of criticism for the decision to close Manual. It has since reopened as a DPS innovation school. But, uh, Seth, it just seems like it can't be a coincidence that Harris is appearing there. Uh, What's your read?
3: Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting move on her part. I mean, she doesn't necessarily need to uh, heavily go after Michael Bennett. Uh, he's, at least at present, not a major threat to her in the polls. But if she wants to do well in Colorado, you know, she wants to kind of take advantage of some of the fighting lines that already exist uh, within the Democratic Party there. And that's a key one um, education policy, um, uh, attitudes toward students of color. Um, this is obviously a, um, a an area of some challenge within Democratic circles within Colorado. And I, I think she's clued into, you know, some of the symbolic aspects of that within the state.
0: I'd like to talk more generally, Seth, about presidential candidates visiting Colorado. Uh, Governor Polis's contention in moving Colorado's primary up To Super Tuesday was that we we would see more of the candidates. Uh, One, do you think that's true? Two, do you think that uh, the candidates are going to see Colorado as an important place to stop?
3: I think in a number of ways, it it depends on how the other early states are shaping up. It's a distinct possibility that we're not going to see a real consensus emerge from uh, Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada. And, you know, you could have uh, a different winner in each of those. Mm. You throw in on top of that California, which uh, they've moved their primary up to early March and they have early voting in that. Um, You have a lot of uncertainty, which means that the other early March states, including Colorado, could end up mattering a lot more. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if we start seeing a lot of the candidates show up. We haven't seen a lot so far. But we might not see the sort of finality come from the the February contest states.
0: Well, as we said, Michael Bennett will debate in Detroit Wednesday, the second night. Uh, He shares the stage with Harris, Biden and Cory Booker, the New Jersey senator, who's also considered to be really in the first tier of Democratic candidates. Uh, Stephen, we talked about Hickenlooper. What are Michael Bennett's prospects in Iowa?
2: Sure. I mean, like Looper, he's he's polling pretty low, um, but he's putting in some time here. He's uh, visiting the state and trying to just kind of meet people one-on-one, which is the traditional, you know, way to do things in Iowa. And I think a lot of candidates are kind of putting a lot of their chips on that FaceTime in Iowa and we'll kind of see if it helps with, with so many people in the field.
0: Well, finally, gentlemen, I want to point to a survey commissioned by the Immigration Hub. This is National Advocacy Group. And it found that while President Trump is, quote, underwater on immigration, Democrats haven't been able to take advantage of it because voters are unsure where the party stands. Uh, This survey specifically points out that 73 percent of voters in Colorado are unsure where the party stands on immigration. Uh, Stephen, I'm wondering what you're hearing in Iowa. Like, how much do voters there care about immigration? Have candidates brought this up and able to make a compelling case on the Democratic side?
2: I think that when they have brought it up, it's been more in generalities than specifics, right? So decrying the conditions in these uh, detention facilities along the border, criticizing some of what the Trump administration has done, but less of offering uh, their own specific solutions. I think there's a lot of sense of what we're doing now is wrong, but they have yet to get too deeply into the specifics. I mean, most of them.
0: But that, that seems to confirm what this poll is finding, which is that it's not entirely clear uh, where the party and perhaps uh, individual candidates stand. Seth, you've been looking at the election nationally. Uh, will immigration become the deciding issue of the 2020 campaign, do, do you
3: think? I mean, it's certainly an important issue. And I, I don't know if it matters so much how uh, how specific or vague the Democratic policies are on this. People have a pretty good sense of where Trump is on it. And if he's running for re-election, um, the election is largely going to be seen as a referendum on him. Are people happy or, or upset with his approach, um, regardless of what the, what the Democrats are saying on this?
0: But without Democratic specificity, don't you have the risk of people uh, filling in the blanks saying, oh, that's the Open Borders Party? I mean, that's certainly how Trump is trying to define them.
3: Well, there certainly will be some filling in the blanks, but mostly people will just assume, uh, you know, whatever Trump's uh, policy is, the Democrat is, a, is a, has a different plan. And, you know, for those who are upset with Trump's plans, they will see the Democratic one more favorably. For those who like what Trump is offering, they will tend to see Democrats as offering something like open borders. Um, There's, I think, limited value to Democrats explaining in great specificity just what they stand for on this. since I I think mostly it's going to come down to how people feel about what Trump has been doing.
0: Hmm. Okay, one last thing. I just read an AP story that CNN is not tonight going to do the raise your hand if yes or no questions. Uh, They've decided it's too blunt an instrument. Raise your hand, yes or no, good idea. Seth?
3: (laughs) Good idea to not include those.
0: Okay, Stephen?
3: Yeah, I think that's fine. No one's going to miss those.
0: No one's going to miss those. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. We appreciate your time. Thank Thank you. Thank you very much. Stephen Gruber Miller covers politics for the Des Moines Register, and Seth Mascot directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver and has written about the presidential campaign for the website 538. They joined us to discuss the next set of presidential debates, this time in Detroit. Former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper appears tonight, with Senator Michael Bennett taking the stage Wednesday. When it's time for you to die, it's likely that you will know ahead of time. Many people learn they have a terminal condition weeks, months, maybe years beforehand. Sudden deaths, it turns out, are the exception. Durango author and hospice volunteer Jenny Deer combines personal experiences and the latest research on death to ask What Does It Feel Like to Die? And that's the title of her new book. And Jenny, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Uh, You find that uh, most people would prefer to die suddenly, and yet, as we just said, that's not likely. This strikes me as really, really important to grapple with that time between some sort of diagnosis and our demise. Is it a time you think that we're amply prepared for?
4: Of course not. (laughs) I think... Most of us think that we want to die suddenly, right? That we're going to fall off a cliff or die in our sleep,
0: and that would be the preferable situation. That's how I want to go. I want to die in my sleep, exactly. But
4: that's what you think you want. When in truth, when you get a chance to think about it or spend time with people who are dying, you see they have a chance to say goodbye to their friends, to the people they love. They have a chance to heal old wounds it's a, It can be a really beautiful time, and people have a chance sometimes to grow in that period.
0: Okay. I must admit, I hadn't really thought about those dimensions in the way that a diagnosis could be something of a gift. Is that what you're saying?
4: It can be, yes.
0: You write about something called the existential slap. What is the existential slap?
4: Right. So intellectually, we all know we're mortal, right? We know we're going to die. But most of us don't really believe that. At least it's not going to happen to us.
0: And at least not soon.
4: At least not soon. But when a person gets a fatal diagnosis, if they find out they have a terminal disease, then for most of them, there's this profound change in how they feel about themselves and how they feel about who they are in the world, and what the meaning of life is. And one researcher I interviewed called that the existential slap. And most people get really shaken up then, but they adapt. They learn to cope and sometimes even grow.
0: Yeah, that was my next question. I imagine that there is a fair bit of anxiety after the existential slap, but that doesn't have to be where you remain.
4: You're right. And... um, An exciting thing that I learned about was researchers have worked with dying patients and found that there are coping strategies where people have a chance to reflect and to um, think about how they've coped well with tough situations in their past, and they're able to cope and do better.
0: Are these things that can be learned, you're saying? There are things that
4: can be learned, yes.
0: So with a diagnosis, with a sense of your impending mortality, there can be some learning. This can be a time for some homework?
4: It can be some time for profound homework, right? Because it's the kind of work that most of us should be doing all our lives. But you still have a chance when you're close to death to do that work.
0: This is work you say we should be doing all of our lives, which leads me to a somewhat existential question. Are we dying the moment we are born? Like how, how do you see the dying process as beginning after the research that you did and after the volunteer work you've done with hospice? Of course, from
4: the moment you're born, you can you can call that the moment you start to die. But the um, the researchers I talked to said it's it's much more useful to think about a time when doctors stop trying to save your life. And for, for most people in our country, in modern times, it's sort of an artificial um, clue that we get that we're dying. And it's when you receive some kind of terminal diagnosis. So it's even though that's not something that we would have known necessarily in the past, that's when people find out
0: now. But why would I do the homework to prepare for death at all before that?
4: the um. There's a saying in hospice uh-huh. that the people often die the way that they've lived. And in fact, you know, a lot of deaths are not easy. People have to confront some of the emotional demons that they haven't done in the past. And, and one nurse told me, she said, remember, not all of us go gentle into that good night. And... The, um, the, the coping that can happen doesn't always happen.
0: I think what I hear you saying is that the kind of emotional work that leads to a good life is the kind of work that could also lead to a smoother death.
4: Well said, yes.
0: And that it's about the relationships you've built and hopefully maintained, uh, and that perhaps all the baggage that you are carting with yourself in life is going to greet you as you head towards death.
4: Yes, and it's about forgiving and asking for forgiveness and telling the people that you love, reminding them that you love them.
0: You write about your own experience when your mother was dying of cancer. Um, This is really what prompted you to write the book. Um, Will you read the opening passage from the introduction for us? Sure. Okay. And you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. My guest is Jenny Deer. She lives in Durango, and her new book is What Does It Feel Like to Die?
4: Here's what I remember, a hospice nurse sketching out logistics for my dying mother in terms both gentle and blunt, then a pause, and the nurse asking, do you want to know what will happen as your body starts shutting down? She was offering to trace death's outlines on my mother's body and to do that now while my mother was mobile, coherent, and very much alive. There was a slight thrill of shock, of foreboding, but what my mother and I felt most strongly was relief and something like fascination. We wanted to know because in the course of six and a half years of treatment, although my mother saw two general practitioners, six oncologists, a cardiologist, several radiation technicians, nurses at two chemotherapy facilities, and surgeons at three different clinics. Not once, to my knowledge, had anyone talked to her about what would happen as she died.
0: Hmm. Information is power. And so when you are approaching death, to be able to have the question answered, what will this be like? That has to be really profound. That was
4: what I was hungry for. I had seen some beautiful books about the poignant experience of losing someone, about the spirituality surrounding death, and what I had trouble finding was facts and evidence-based information about what researchers know about it.
0: About what it is like to die. Jenny, what can we say about whether it hurts to die?
4: Well, I... I still remember a conversation I had with my mother once she had terminal cancer. We were coming back from a treatment in the Front Range to Durango, where we lived, and she talked a little bit about what it felt to be someone who was dying, and I talked a little bit about what it was like to be the daughter of someone who was dying. And she said at one point, I'm really not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of dying, but I am afraid of pain. And when I started doing my research, it turns out that's true for a significant number of people. They're much more afraid of pain than they are of death itself.
0: How common is pain in death?
4: I began asking the palliative care experts that I was talking to.
0: Palliative care, end-of-life care.
4: And they would say... It really doesn't have to be painful. For 90% or more of dying people, the physical pain associated with dying can be treated or controlled.
0: If you die in a medical setting, I gather that's the underpinning here.
4: Yes. Yes, it's based on use of medications and the problem is that there's a difference between can be treated and will be or is treated so a lot of times there are there are situations where pain doesn't get treated nearly as well as we have the capability to do it
0: is that a function of poor communication between the patient and their providers or a lack of having access to medical care
4: it's for a whole host of reasons but one of the big ones is The main drug that gets used is some class of opioids. And for really good reasons, we have deep cultural fears around opioids. And so sometimes even doctors are afraid to use as much as is required. And sometimes patients refuse them.
0: Is that a function of the pendulum swinging after the opioid crisis? Is that what I hear you say?
4: It's... was a function originally of fears of opioids, and we were starting to get better about that, and now the pendulum's affecting that as well. That's
0: fascinating that doctors are concerned even for folks at end of life, when presumably the idea of addiction is not, you know, front and center. Right, right. Uh, let's contrast that, though, with Uh, when someone does die suddenly? Because you talk about um, the rarer cases of people who die in car accidents and uh, perhaps being shot in a violent death. What do we know about whether those are painful deaths?
4: So I interviewed a researcher with the National Institute of Health. And I said, what, what happens with sudden death? And he said, for the most part in our culture you're going to end up in the emergency room and in the emergency room if someone has a life-threatening condition they're immediately going to be put under anesthesia so you won't know that you're dying and you won't experience physical pain once they have you under and then he said in other conditions if for some reason you fell out in the middle of of nowhere that, um, and that was going to kill you most of the time, the vast majority of the time, if it's a life-threatening condition, your brain is going to be affected. So you will lose consciousness. And again, he said, what's reassuring is after that initial pain, you're not going to have a painful death and a sudden death.
0: I think what I hear you saying is that our primary fear of death is the pain of it and that fear is overblown.
4: I think that's one part of our primary fear of death, the physical pain. Mm -hmm. And that's true for a lot of people. But another part of the suffering that can accompany death is the emotional suffering. And I was really struck by the words of one doctor that I talked with, Ira Bayek, who's worked a lot with dying people. And he said, yes, I believe that we can get physical pain under control, mm-hmm. I think that ha- that's pretty darn easy to do, but I think that we all have to suffer in some ways because we're losing everything and everyone we've loved. But Bayek also believes that through that process, we come to a kind of growth that we're able to heal old relationships and mend old wounds.
0: It's interesting that that people, you write, frequently die because they are what medicine describes as frail. And, you know, that term frail, it doesn't sound like a killer. So help us understand what that means.
4: Right. So through medical advances, we can expect much longer lifespans than we once had. Mm -hmm. And we can expect to, you know, live into our 70s, 80s, or 90s probably. But we still accumulate diseases. And for most people, the longer they live, the more serious conditions they start to accumulate. So they reach this time of weakness when they're dependent on daily care on other people. And at some point, it's not going to be one particular disease that kills them. They're much more likely to die from something that's not thought of as fatal at all, like a common cold. And that's frailty. And what's difficult about it is that we don't see it as fatal. So it's a lot harder for people to recognize that they have a limited amount of time left and to start thinking about do I really want this invasive procedure? Do I really Mm -hmm. want to artificially prolong my
0: life? It strikes me that we yearn for a label for our demise. You know, like we're we're so quick to ask, what did did she die of, right? Uh, And so you want to hear, it was a heart attack, it was cancer, it was something concrete. The point is, many of us will be claimed by this slow demise that's a a kind of constellation of of issues of frailty that's so unromantic in a way
4: it it is unromantic isn't it and i think one of the things when researchers have studied what it's like for people once you have a terminal diagnosis in that time between that diagnosis, and when you die, is that they seek control over their lives, that you feel like you lose control. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look for a label, it's that same sense of looking for some kind of control.
0: You write about Margaret Campbell, a palliative care nurse who talks about death as a messy experience. And she's talking about things like odors and noises and incontinence. How do we face that messiness?
4: Well, a lovely thing that Margaret Margaret Campbell said was, we're used to birth being a messy process. Uh-huh. We know that we have fluids and odors and blood and pain associated with birth. And and perhaps because we also know about the joy associated with it, we allow that to happen.
0: Right. We're, we're okay with the messiness because the... the the payoff is pretty good, right? There's a life ahead.
4: Right. But we're afraid of the messiness with with dying. And she said if we allowed it, if we were more willing to allow that and not try to shut it down with medications that maybe aren't necessary or invasive procedures, that a lot more people would have more peaceful deaths.
0: I've heard the term death rattle. What does that refer to?
4: So death rattle is experienced by Not all dying people, but a group of people will have this sort of gurgling at the back of their throats. Is this
0: something you've heard?
4: I've heard it, yeah. And it's really uncomfortable for the people around the dying person to hear.
0: Because you think they're suffering?
4: Because it sounds like they're suffering, yes. But in fact, one of the things that Margaret Campbell studied was whether that hurts or is really uncomfortable for the dying patient. And it turns out it's not. And for me, that's really symbolic of the difference between what we expect dying to be like and what it looks like to witnesses and Mm. what we know about what it feels like for the dying person.
0: The optics of dying versus the actual lived experience of dying. Do you fear death?
4: I I think I would say I don't at this point. But I also think I, I began this research with the naive idea that finding out more about death and really facing it would make me achieve enlightenment. And I'd have that joy at, that you see in um, the, the Buddhist. But, um, but what I have found is that I'm more comfortable around dying people. And I think I'm more comfortable around the idea of death.
0: Um. Does this help you understand the afterlife at all? I know that's a big question. But is there any way in which understanding how we die gives you some insight into what happens afterwards?
4: <laughs> I think I think that must be true for some people.
0: Uh-huh. The um I mean obviously religion and spirituality and beliefs enter this.
4: The the whole approach that I took was to find out evidence-based information. Mm-hmm. And so it's I'm looking to researchers for a different kind of answer. And I don't feel like it's it's made me think that much about afterlife.
0: How about near-death experiences?
4: The researchers said something similar about near-death experiences. They said that when people turn to them for proof of their faith they're looking to the wrong to the wrong people for that that what researchers have found is that there is a chance that some of us will experience some of those classic near death experiences the tunnel the light the super clarity and what they study is what are those caused by? Yeah, and most of them, it's a function of the de- deterioration of the brain.
0: So they find a physiological reason behind those experiences that we might think of as spiritual.
4: Yes, but the researchers that I talked to were clear that that didn't mean there was there wasn't some sort of afterlife connection.
0: Right, these things could exist together. You're yes. saying. What did you learn that gave you the most comfort about death?
4: I think it was the studies, and these were smaller studies, but that they found that in the last few hours, for most people, no matter what the rest of their dying process had been like, mm-hmm. death was peaceful, that the pain seemed to disappear, and so did the emotional suffering.
0: That most of us can look forward to that?
4: I think that's true.
0: I want to thank you for your time, Jenny. Thank you. Taranga writer Jenny Deer's new book is What Does It Feel Like to Die? Inspiring new insights into the experience of dying. It's a mix of her personal experience as a hospice volunteer and her research, uh, or interviews, that is, with researchers on dying. She's going to speak at the tattered cover Lodo tonight.
1: Legal marijuana is green. Factually, it just is green. Well, as an industry, it's actually not very green at all. On the latest episode of the new podcast from CPR called On Something, we take a look at one guy in Gypsum, Colorado, who is trying his darndest to grow weed with the smallest carbon footprint possible. Zero carbon footprint, in fact. Listen to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For dog owners, this may sound familiar.
1: Oh, I know you're really excited. Are you ready to eat?
0: Okay. That's Dr. Kelly Deal sharing a happy moment with her Labrador retriever Emily. Dr. Deal is a veterinarian with the Morris Animal Foundation in Denver. She has embarked on a study to understand a difficult aspect of dog ownership, cancer. It's a leading cause of death in dogs. The Foundation is studying why that's the case by tracking the lives of more than 3,000 golden retrievers. Dr. Deal spoke with my colleague, Avery Lill.
5: Hi, Kelly. Hi. These golden retrievers are normal pets, living ordinary lives in homes across the country. But you're collecting an unprecedented amount of data through vet visits and owner questionnaires. How detailed are you getting?
1: Can you give me some examples of the questions you're asking? Sure. So what we're looking at is, again, to get a really deep dive into Especially environment lifestyle one of my favorite questions is in the diet section where we ask people about you know everything from the treats to the obviously the dog food that they feed but we ask about any human food they get and we ask about do you you know, feed your dog peppers. And we'll even ask what color peppers do you give? Green peppers, red peppers, yellow peppers, orange peppers. So that gives you an idea of the level of detail that we're looking for. So
5: you want to know if owners are giving their dogs bell peppers, like from a grocery right, store. Right, And how long are these questionnaires that owners are filling out every year?
1: They're over 100 pages. They're online, so people click through them, but they take a long time. Our participants typically say it can take them an hour to two hours every year to fill out these forms.
5: So this is a huge undertaking. And one of the primary goals of the study is to better understand cancer in golden retrievers, How big of a problem is cancer for dogs?
1: Uh, It's a big problem. We know from statistics that approximately 6 million dogs are diagnosed with cancer every year. That's a lot. Is that around the world? Uh, No, United States. Wow. So it's it's pretty extensive. And we know that Golden Retrievers, unfortunately, have a very high cancer rate in the United States compared to other breeds of dogs. And some estimates say that 60% to 70% of Golden Retrievers will develop cancer and die of cancer in their lifetime. So they were a breed that we selected partly because of their cancer risk. Partly, if you know Golden Retrievers, they're a very popular dog in the United States. United States. And we needed 3,000 dogs of a certain age. And so that gave us a big pool to draw from. And lastly, we know that golden retriever owners are super motivated folks. And they're very, very passionate and in tune with this problem of cancer. So we had a very easy time recruiting people into the study because of, again, their sort of mobilization around this issue as well.
5: And I imagine that in understanding an environment, you need dogs spread out across the country. So our Golden Retrievers pretty well represented regionally?
1: Yes, they are. And that is another reason that they were a good choice for us. We knew there were a lot out there. And we got actually really lucky. We divided the United States into five different regions. And we are equally represented in all those regions. It's We're in the 48 contiguous states. And people always ask, well, what about Alaska and Hawaii? And part of the reason we had to exclude those states is because some of our samples need to be sent overnight to our biorepository. And those were just too far out of, uh, out of the region for us to be able to get those samples.
5: That makes sense. You recently studied some results that actually aren't cancer-related, but they came as a result of this long-term study. You wanted to know more about how spaying and neutering affects dogs' long-term
1: health. What did you find? Right. Well, this was really interesting. And, of course, all of our dogs have now what we would say aged out of. They're all over three or four years of age. So we thought, why don't we look at young dogs? Uh, Many of them are spayed and neutered at this point in their lives and see what the health outcomes are for those young dogs with spay-neuter. And two questions that are really important and have been discussed a lot in the veterinary world are obesity, and what we call non traumatic orthopedic injury. And a non traumatic orthopedic injury is obviously you're not hit by a car and get a, a um, broken leg. These are injuries typically to the joints. And for those armchair athletes out there, torn cruciates, we see them in dogs. And obviously they happen in people. So we wanted to look back because there had been previous reports of these sort of negative consequences of spaying and neutering dogs at a young age. And that's what we looked at. And what did you find? And what we found was very interesting. We found data that supported some of these previous claims. In our dogs under six months of age, if they were neutered or spayed at under six months of age, they had a significantly higher risk of a non-traumatic orthopedic injury compared to dogs who were older when they were spayed or neutered or what we call intact animals, right, that they have not been spayed or neutered. We also found that obesity risk was seen in all the groups compared to intact dogs. So all the age brackets we looked at had a significantly increased Uh, incidence of obesity. And what was really interesting was there wasn't an association between obesity and these non-traumatic ligament injuries because you might say, well, of course, if a patient or dog was overweight, well, sure, they'd be at a higher risk for this injury, but it's independent of that. So, in other words, even if a person's
5: dog stays at a normal weight after it's been spayed or neutered young, it still might be at risk for these injuries.
1: Right. Exactly.
5: And does that mean that you're more cautious about recommending spaying and neutering
1: for all dogs? Um, No. What we looked at specifically, of course, was golden retrievers. And people were interested particularly in large breed dogs and these orthopedic injuries because that's where we tended to see them and where previous literature suggests, hey, maybe for large breed dogs, we should wait before we do a spay and neuter procedure. And that makes sense because the larger the dog, they tend to go through puberty later than if you had a Yorkie or a Chihuahua, a smaller breed dog. So we we kind of knew that, and it, it makes sense a little bit. We know that reproductive hormones are really important in proper bone and joint health and development, and so we're taking away those hormones very suddenly and at different ages.
5: You haven't published any conclusions from this study with a focus on cancer yet, Is what you're seeing right now in the dogs that you're studying seven years into this research what you expected to be seeing?
1: Um, Good question. Yes. At first, we were a little slow in our cancer diagnoses, but we're now seeing them accelerate, unfortunately. And these dogs are six or seven years of age, and it's really tragic, but not completely unexpected. And we're seeing more and more and more cancer deaths.
5: And when you finish the study several years from now, what do you hope it will
1: reveal? Our hope is that we can uncover some risk factors for cancer. Of course, the first conclusion is going to be cancer risk factors in Goldens in the United States, which sounds pretty specific. But the hope is that we will, these um, findings will translate to other dogs maybe other animals, and I'm going to include people, uh, in in that where we can start making recommendations to owners. The other thing we hope is that it will stimulate other research, right? Like we'll find an association and people go, wow, that's interesting. And then you can take a deeper dive into a particular issue then.
5: The study, like you said, it could also help the medical community also better understand human
1: disease as well. Can you tell me more about that? Right, well, I think a great example for comparative medicine, which is becoming much more popular and dogs are becoming much more popular as a research animal I hate to use that term, but you get the idea for than a mouse or a rat sitting in a cage. They share our environment, their lifetime is compressed, but in many ways they're very similar, more similar to humans. We know, for example, to get back to your question, that osteosarcoma, which is a primary bone tumor, it's the most common bone tumor we see in dogs, tends to be large breed dogs, is an excellent model for osteosarcoma, which affects kids. 10,000 dogs are diagnosed with osteosarcoma in the United States every year. About 800 kids are. But this is devastating. Typically, these kids and dogs are amputated. Um, They need chemotherapy. But very rarely in dogs do we see anybody live over two years of age, and it is extremely rare to cure this disease. It is a very good model, unfortunately, for what they see in pediatrics. And we, with osteosarcoma, A procedure was developed several years ago at Colorado State University, and a veterinary oncologist surgeon there worked with a pediatric oncologist to pioneer what's called limb sparing surgery, an attempt to save, you know, can we save the limb in a patient with osteosarcoma so they don't have to undergo an amputation? And it was very successful, and those techniques are applied now to kids.
5: So this is an example where veterinary medicine crosses over into medicine for humans as well. Right.
1: Absolutely.
5: And it's probably important to note that when we're talking about dogs as research animals, this is different than traditional
1: animal testing. You're not causing a disease in any of these animals. That's a good point. And that's what makes dogs particularly attractive. They develop these diseases naturally, just like we develop certain diseases naturally. And therefore, they're a much better model than... Uh, You know, a genetically altered rodent, like a mouse, that we can make them obese because we change their genetic makeup. Or a rat that people put, you know, transplant a tumor to look at behavior. These are animals that develop diabetes, heart disease, cancer, just like we do.
5: As a part of your work in the study, you've been on call to answer questions for vets and owners on nights and weekends and on holidays for years now. What keeps you going with this study? Why does it matter to
1: you? Um, I would say I practiced for a long time.
5: As a veterinarian? As a
1: veterinarian. And I was in specialty medicine, which means we would often get the really difficult cases. And over and over again, people asked me, why did this happen? And they would be anguished about that question. And if I could give them a better answer for cancer or for why a disease develops, or even better still, tell them, if you avoid this, you're going to decrease your dog's risk of developing a bone tumor by X percentage. Or if you wait till your golden retriever is a year of age or over six months, and you are really going to decrease their risk of tearing out... a a cruciate ligament, or developing obesity, I would love to be able to do that to people because so many times you go, I don't know, and that's really unsatisfying and and hard. Um, I would love to make my dog's life healthier and know how to do that. And so I'm really, really excited, and it keeps me going. Um, Yes, many of us take those on call and walk people through some very difficult situations, but it's absolutely worth it.
0: That is veterinarian Dr. Kelly Deal. She is Senior Director of Science and Communications for the Morris Animal Foundation, and she spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Special thanks to Anthony Cotton. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us.